Welcome to Smarter Markets, a free weekly podcast featuring stories from the entrepreneurs and icons of commodities, capital markets, and technology, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we explore the questions, is capitalism in crisis, and will building smarter markets be the antidote? And now, here's your host, Eric Townsend. Welcome to the fifth episode of Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast that explores how financial markets could be redesigned and improved to better serve market participants and society as a whole. Smarter Markets is made possible by a grant from Abex Technologies. I'm your host, Eric Townsend. Our first four episodes taught me that this market is ready for change. It's crystal clear now that the industry is ready for the tokenization of financial assets, which Robert Friedland, Mariam Ayati, and Jeff Curry spoke about in prior episodes. And the benefits will be enormous. But we've already received some feedback from listeners asking what the big deal is. Some of you have observed that financial markets have already been computerized for decades. One listener tweeted that they've had electronic warehouse receipts in the cotton market for 20 plus years and questioned why putting them on a distributed ledger is such a big deal. It's clear that we need to do a better job of distinguishing between the computerized accounting systems, which we've had for decades, and true digital bearer instruments, or tokenized assets, which are a much more recent invention that really is a game changer. So I set out to find a guest who could really speak to that distinction in detail, but I didn't want a technology guy who might confuse the audience with technospeak. I wanted somebody who understands the tech, but speaks the language of finance, who could communicate these ideas clearly to our audience. Charlie McGarra is Chief Strategy Officer for Blockchain.com, the largest self-custodied crypto wallet provider globally. Previously, he was a Goldman Sachs partner and former head of metals trading for Goldman. So his native language is definitely finance. In this interview, Charlie explains tokenization in terms that finance professionals can relate to, and then goes on to explain what this change will mean both to financial markets and to the people who work in them. My interview with Charlie McGarra is coming up next. And now with this week's special guest, here's your host, Eric Townsend. Charlie, thanks for joining us on Smarter Markets. It's great to have you on the show. I want to start with something that I know has been confusing some of our listeners because you get Robert Friedland talking about this vision of using blockchains to change things, or you get Miriam Ayati talking about a vision of a fully tokenized commodity supply chain. Or you get Jeff Curry talking about how he thinks the single best use of blockchain that he's ever heard of is tokenizing warehouse receipts for commodity futures delivery. And I think what's happening is a lot of listeners with a financial background are saying, you guys are talking about this you know, digital financial system of the future. What the heck are you talking about? The financial system has been digital for like 30 years. It's been computerized for a long time. Now, there's a nuance in there, you and I know, Charlie, which is, well, wait a minute, it, it hasn't been based on secure digital bearer instruments in a tokenized model. But I know the mistake that I've been making, because I have a technology background, is to go down that technology terminology path that just confuses everybody. 
You understand this technology. In fact, as the chief strategy officer for blockchain.com, you're an expert in it, an industry-leading expert. But your background is finance, and your, your, your native language is finance. So please explain to our audience, in financial terms, how is this digital financial system of the future that you and I and Miriam and, and Robert and Jeff envision any different from the digital financial system that's existed for 20 or 30 years? Well, Eric, it's uh, great to be here, and it's a pretty exciting prospect to think about how the market structure could evolve. But to answer it in a single sentence, it's different because we can build a system based on assets rather than a system built on institutions. In other words, with secure digital bearer instruments, we can actually move a representation of the asset itself around instead of just the future obligation of some other counterparty to perform. And if it can be represented digitally, then it can be traded. So what I would envisage as the system uh, and, its, and its evolution is basically the commodification of everything on a digital rail. You know, the unleashing of the market price mechanism and price discovery at ever finer uh, levels of, of detail and markets being spun up in all kinds of things. So as, as Mariam was alluding to in, in the earlier podcast, the whole supply chain can be unbundled and observed and traded with a pricing mechanism. You'll have on-demand procurement much faster because the settlement mechanisms are, are instantaneous on-chain or near instantaneous on-chain. The markets will be more transparent and more accessible, and there'll be greater informational parity because all the data will live up there, which means that the informational asymmetries that arise when people trade will be less. And... And then on top of that, there'll be automated collateral management instantiated by the technology and the chain, but basically it amounts to moving assets around in real time to service the, the financial obligations related to them, rather than relying on a trusted third party or a trusted institution to do it. In other words, you'll be able to move assets around the system much faster. The result of that will be lower systemic risk because there's just less intermediation, less institutional boxes that sit in between buyers and sellers and, and uh, the consummation of trades. Asset-based financing will be easier. So the cost of capital will be based more around asset-based lending, recourse to asset pools, where the enforcement mechanism is all done on chain. And so it's not really in doubt. So the enforcement of contracts will be just much faster. So collateral, uh, you'll be able to rely on collateral much more transparently and, and much more easily. And there'll be more transparent pricing and price discovery in, in all kinds of things. So I could see markets evolving, you know, in the commodity sphere, for example, not just in a single price of a copper contract, but in the pricing of every freight net back to every, every port, all traded in real time. In short, what we're witnessing using these technological rails is, is the dawning of a system that's based on, on near instantaneous asset pass through. And uh, the result will be a richer trading environment with much more tradables, mostly automated by software and traded by machines. It'll be more accessible, much more capital efficient, and most importantly, more resilient in the face of systemic risk and may even solve too big to fail because of the shortened settlement times and reduced collateral uncertainty. Okay. Now, the buzzword that everybody's throwing around, you heard it from Maria Mayada, you heard it from Jeff Curry, is tokenization. What specifically is meant by this word tokenization in financial terms? Tokenization means creating a digital representation on that shared audit trail. So the decentralized nature 
of whatever blockchain or other decentralized ledger technology have is everybody keeps a, a copy of what they think happened and then and then it's all reconciled so that there's a single authoritative history that everybody can agree on. And then when you tokenize an asset, you basically timestamp a digital representation of that asset. And that asset could be either physical, like a bar of gold, or it could be, you know, paid in kind, like the right to use a system, or it could just be a virtual asset like a Bitcoin. But whatever it is, it's basically your right to do something on that public ledger that everybody can agree on, including its entire transaction history. The token is a digital representation of your property via a private key that allows you to access the ledger. And, and you know, this, when you hold a token, you can use it. And one of the main things you can do is send it to somebody else or otherwise deploy it. Let's illustrate this concept with the old version of a digital system and the new version of a digital system. Because for, you know, I don't know, 20 years or however long the, the GLD ETF has been around, I've had digital online systems that have allowed me to buy gold in the form of an ETF share. But when I buy a share of GLD on my E-Trade or my Schwab system or whatever, what I'm actually doing is I'm executing a transaction where Schwab or whoever it is says that they're selling me one share of GLD, the ETF. And whether or not they have it to sell to me is hopefully something that they're being honest about, but there's no way for me to verify that behind the scenes. Now, once I get that share of GLD, it's a security interest, uh, an equity interest in a fund, which in turn owns a bunch of gold that's in vaults, but the fund itself doesn't have any vaults. They subcontract that out to a number of storage providers like JP Morgan. And that means that there's a contractual relationship where JP Morgan is holding a bunch of gold for GLD. And if I take it to the next level, there may be sub custodians that are working for JP Morgan who are storing that gold in various different vaults. And eventually, through about 12 different levels of contracts and obligations and legal exposures, I have effective ownership of a piece of gold, but I don't own it directly. I own a security interest in an entity that owns it and has it custodied by some other entity. Now, in this new architecture that we're talking about, there is actually a, a product called DGLD, where when I buy gold online, I'm literally buying a token which represents ownership interest in a specific piece of gold someplace. And I own it right then at that instant. There's no counterparties involved. There's no equity interests in funds. There's none, none of that stuff. It's that token entitles me to the legal ownership of a specific piece of gold that exists in a specific place. And how is, how is that possible? What are the ramifications and, and consequences of that? Yeah, well, I think there's a, a number of ramifications and consequences. So I think just to, to clarify... In, in an ETF, you own a share of a vehicle that then has title to some assets, which are then sub, you know, custodied and subcustodied through various intermediaries. And to access that ETF, you have to access another intermediary, right? To to basically receive your your cash when you when you buy that, and then they'll hold the the, the share on your behalf, right? In the DGLD architecture, the gold still sits in a vault. 
but title to the and title to the gold is represented through the the, the vaults you know the vaults ledger system as a token on a blockchain, and then if you buy the token on the blockchain, which you can do in the blockchain.com wallet, for example, then if you bring that token to the vault, you can show up and and redeem the t- and hand them the token and and or, you know send them the token on chain, and uh, and receive your borrowed gold. So it's just it's just a massively less intermediated means of representing title to the asset, and the title to the asset is held direct by the end purchaser rather than by a series of intermediaries, you know, on behalf of others. So now now that you have title to your asset held as actual physical property, it's easier to trade it with others because you can send it to other people directly. Now they have title and they can take that same token, show up at the vault, and redeem it for metal. And nobody needs to stand in between as that moves. Now, because nobody needs to stand in between as it moves, the holder of the token knows that the only risk they have is that you know the vault doesn't somehow perform its obligation to give you back your gold, but the gold is sitting there physically verified and audited and, and, and observable and all these things. Whereas in a share marketplace, if you want to get to the gold, you've got to rely on lots of other people to go further down the supply chain and get it. And so there's a big reduction in counterparty risk the more intermediaries you take out. And in terms of the implications for the market, a big reduction in counterparty risk and a reduction of intermediaries you know, really means two things. One is fees come down because the more disintermediated things are and the more efficient they are. And then secondly, there's also an efficiency and, and risk mitigation that occurs because, because you no longer have to rely on so many potential counterparties, you know, fulfilling their obligation rather than just knowing that if you show up and you can get what you want. So it's just a much less intermediated thing, which makes it both less expensive to, to manage and, and, and reduces the counterparty risk, which ultimately reduces the, uh, the working capital for the system. I want to pick up on the point you just made about counterparty risk, because I think that really is at the center of this, not just reducing counterparty risk, but there's also counterparty relationships that we just take for granted in finance and assume that they have to be there. I want to buy 100 shares of stock. Well, obviously, that transaction has to be cleared and settled before I truly own the stock. Everybody just accepts that. We have this T plus three clearing where it takes three days to clear and settle the transaction. We're really going into an environment where there is no clearing and settlement. That that concept is no longer necessary. And I think that paradigm shift throws a lot of people off. So what are other aspects of the way this works that's different than what finance people are used to that we need to start to embrace? Once a system is, is fully tokenized or a system is fully tokenized, the world changes in a lot of different ways. So one of the things that happens is that the settlement and, and clearing lifecycle massively decreases or, or in fact goes away because the instantiation of the trade is synonymous with the settlement of the trade because everything just moves on chain instantaneously in terms of who, who controls what assets. Another thing that's very different is that because a blockchain ledger has a history to it that's open and observable, it, it becomes really easy to see which assets are where and who has what. So things like uh, a real-time commitment of traders report, for example, could be done. And uh, an understanding of basically, of basically what is where and, and the provenance of how it got there, which could include things like understanding the cost basis prevailing in the market every time an asset moved. So you could have a sense of how much uh, unrealized PL is the whole market sitting on 
in any given market. So there's a whole pile of data and analytics that become uh, powered when you know who, who got what when, which is super interesting as a, as a trader and risk manager. On top of that, because private keys enable self-custody, because let us not forget, once you hold your cryptographic private key, you have the ability to move your asset. You and only you have the ability to move your asset around on the chain. Because you have self-custody in the system, without a loss of performance, people can self-custody their assets. So again, it's kind of under this disintermediated idea, but self-custody is a super powerful idea because you're fractionating, or not fractionating, you're at, rather allocating everything you know, in real time to its final destination in terms of holder. And that reduces the risk of having your assets co- or eliminates the risk of having your assets commingled with other people's assets and also makes uh, the transparency totally available for all to see around, you know, how you got what you got. So it's a, it's a pretty big shift. So in the old system, if I want to buy some asset from you, what's going on is I'm dealing with a broker, you're dealing with a broker. My broker is going to make a record in their computer system that says at a certain time, I bought X asset from you and and your broker is going to say you sold X asset to me. And those two brokers are two different companies using two different computer systems and two different data centers. And they're each at the end of the the day, late at night, they're going to run what's called a, a batch job that takes all of this data and pulls it together and it sends it to the exchange and the exchange's records get reconciled with each of the brokers to make sure that everything lines up and that all the numbers match and there's no discrepancies. And only after all of that has happened, we've said to have cleared and settled the transaction. In the new model, you sell something to me, you're basically handing me the digital key to that asset. We don't need brokers on either side. The exchange provides the ability for you to hand me the digital access to that asset. Now I've got it and you don't, and therefore I own it. And that's end of story. That's it. Correct. It goes from me to you. And maybe there's a marketplace platform that, you know, gets us all together, but fundamentally the asset's just moving from me to you. And that is new. And one of the things that that means, I think, is that the brokerage industry is going to change more than others because there's still a lot of exciting stuff for people that are currently in the current brokerage business to do. We need to to make introductions of assets from one party to the next and so forth. There's still something to do, but it's fundamentally different because the old what they used to do, which was to facilitate the closure of that transaction, that's going to be instantaneous and automatic. And it's just, it's done. There's nothing to settle. There's nothing to clear. What else does that mean in terms of consequences to people in the industry? Because one of the things I think about is if you make the world better, that's great, but also it affects certain people. I know, and you know, that in this not perfect world that we live in, a lot of parts of the finance industry involve assets being double-pledged as collateral when they shouldn't be. And the people that are lending against them in some cases are looking the other way. They know perfectly well what's going on, but they've got plausible deniability. They want to make the money on the loan. All of a sudden, we're handing them an improvement to the system, which makes things really clear. But it means you can't cheat anymore. It kind of changes the game. Well, there's a lot, a lot to unpack in, in, in that question. High level, the question, I, I suppose, is how, how could the brokerage industry change with all of this? And, and, and there's quite a lot to unpack in that. So, so the first piece is some of this is just an extension of that kind of big theme 
that Mark Andreessen uh, put in his editorial, his famous editorial so long ago, which is software is eating the world, right? And when software eats the world, it takes out cost and disintermediates. And so things that from the back office perspective, in terms of just settling trades, you know, making, making stuff move around peer-to-peer architectures will just reduce all, you know, a big expense load in, in the piping. And it won't just be for, you know, cryptocurrencies, but also for tokens representing all kinds of financial assets, right? And more and more automation will just reduce the overall, the overall overhead of the thing. And that's a pretty standard kind of software cost, cost play discussion. That's important. The second thing is that some of the front office functions that a broker provides, like aggregating buyers and sellers, aggregating uh, and distributing and distributing stuff, and then, and then taking risk, those functions will continue to exist, but they may begin to exist in ways that are you know, more automated, even more than they are now. In particular, with the transparency provided by the on-chain, you know, mutually agreed upon system-wide audit trail of where everything is and how it got there, anybody who's in the business of selling access to clients or in the business of you know, keeping the system less transparent uh, is going to have a problem. So if your business is basically knowing where all the bodies are buried in terms of any given positional thing, you know, that's, probably, that's probably not a business that's going to last that long. Now, on top of that, right, as you rightly point out, with this increase in transparency, it'll be harder to get up to funny business in terms of, in terms of things like uh, you know, misreporting asset or collateral pledges or, or you know, really any kind of thing, because as more and more stuff moves on chain in transparent, traceable way, not just on a spot right now basis, but also in terms of its history, it'll be easier and easier to replicate and, and, and validate and verify that everything makes sense in terms of, in terms of where our assets, who holds them, who, who are they pledged to, et cetera. So I think uh, now the, some of the functions that, that the brokers perform will, will always need to exist, like taking risk, providing liquidity. So even though there's a peer-to-peer settlement mechanism, somebody's going to have to sit there and make a price. Uh, it may be automated with software. There's a bunch of promising kind of automated market-making type and automated liquidity provision stuff happening in the DeFi space right now. But somebody's going to have to take risks. So, you know, the risk doesn't go away. It just, it just gets moved around faster and more efficiently and more transparent. And also, with the, all this transparency of information in terms of where assets and collateral sit, who owns what, how it got there, those things will also make people who are in the business of selling advice based on proprietary data or, or, or you know, maybe, maybe, less, uh, maybe less attractive because people will have enough data to make their own determination. So, so for example, credit rating agencies or ESG, ESG governance rating agencies, which is kind of a, something that people keep talking about uh, in terms of the market structure, or as potential businesses that may be interesting in the future. These businesses that sell basically validation for a living probably won't be the best businesses in the context of people being able to see the validation for themselves. So for, you know, to, to make that a concrete example, uh, on one of your previous podcasts on Smarter Markets, you were talking about green copper and having a traceable provenance of the, the inputs that were used to produce the green copper and their ESG credentials, um, you won't need an outside rating agency to provide that if you can just see all the information yourself and aggregate it. And there will be, I suspect, best practices that evolve to parse this information that is available on chain and, uh, and just provide it to people. Charlie, I think there's also an aspect of this that has to do with making things possible because of instant settlement and clearing that you couldn't have done before. And let's take an example like the way airlines 
hedge their fuel exposure. When they sell tickets, they buy jet fuel futures so that they'll be able at the current prices to deliver on the tickets that they've sold. Well, that's, a first of all, a very manual process. It's not particularly scientific in how they do it. And once they've got that futures exposure, what they really have is a contract with a broker someplace that gives them exposure to the price market, but they don't really ever stand for physical delivery of that jet fuel. It wouldn't be practical to settle that that hedge that way. Instead, they're buying the jet fuel on, on the spot market through the distribution channels that are available to them, and it's a financial hedge that hopefully approximates offsetting the exposures that they're taking in other parts of the market. If you get to a situation where warehouse receipts and so forth have been tokenized, you can get to, on the futures market, I I go and I literally buy and stand for delivery of Jet A tokens, which I can then electronically transmit to my partner if I'm the airline and I'm employing a, a fixed base operator that's going to pump fuel into my airplanes for me. Now, I can send them the tokens, which are redeemable with the the people that they deal with to get the physical fuel delivered to the airport. And we can have online systems that manage ownership of something like jet fuel that's going into planes through a very sophisticated machine learning AI kind of system that buys and sells at all the right times. But it's actually facilitating getting the fuel into the plane. Now, is that a good idea? Or are we better off to just let the the physical delivery of jet fuel work the way it used to and just have systems that, that do financial hedges the, the way we've done them in the past? Well, that's a fascinating question. And let me try to break that up into, into or, or rephrase the question, which is, which is if you can represent everything in some bundle of activity that a business is doing, should it be, should it be all, you know, kind of, you know, granularized and and priced in real time, kind of on demand. And I think one of the things that's super cool about these technologies is that it's very easy to spin up a new market in something, tokenize it. People trade it on the same rail as everything else. And so, really, the, I think the a different way to ask the same question you're asking is: if you unleash the price discovery mechanism at ever more finely granulated levels. Is that, a, is that a good idea in terms, of, in terms of managing activity, managing supply chains? I would give it an emphatic yes. Generally speaking, if you think about why companies are the size they are and why they do the businesses that they do, it's kind of economic theory 101 that, that, that the scope of the firm is a function of informational asymmetries and transaction costs. And as you reduce those informational asymmetries and reduce those transaction costs, it should allow business activities to be you know, smaller in scope. So you could just have a business that just provides, I guess, or, or a market that just trades the jet fuel and everybody knows that, that it's redeemable in kind and spot. And then everybody can optimize you know, more and more at the clearing price. So the system should be able to move its resources around more and more efficiently all the time. 
We've been talking so far, Charlie, about eliminating counterparty risk that doesn't need to exist. The, the old system required that we have all these counterparty dependencies, and a lot of them can be eliminated. But I'm sure a lot of listeners are saying, wait a minute, uh, I'm in the business of selling counterparty risk because that's my product. If you take bank lending, for example, the whole idea is the bank is taking counterparty risk on whether or not you're going to repay that loan in exchange for you repaying more than you borrowed in, in the form of interest. So if you get to transactions where counterparty risk is not something that we're trying to eliminate, but it really is the product that's being sold on some level, how does this concept of tokenization fit in to those kinds of business models? Yeah, so fantastic. So, so moving counterparty risk around is a big piece of the system. And obviously, anytime lending or extension of, of credit in, in any format, whether it's through derivatives, loans, whatever comes into play, it's a huge consideration. So one piece of the puzzle is, is underwriting that counterparty risk, having an assessment around how should you think about pricing it? How, how do you think about the risk that's being taken? Now, the more information there is on-chain, transparent, and available to assess the person or entity that you're facing in terms of their history of paying and in terms of understanding the component pieces of their current financial positioning, right? the more information you have, the better, the better decision you can make. So one big piece of the puzzle is just making, making it much more transparent. And I think what would help, and then the second piece of the puzzle is reducing intermediaries so there's less of these assessments that you need to make. So in the case of, an example I think would be helpful. So, so you know, what is a bank really? A bank is a box full of loans. It has a bunch of people that work there and it has other businesses, but, but it's, it's, it's a very, very complicated box full of loans. So if you want to have a view on the loans inside a bank, it's very difficult sometimes to do that because you have to rely on their periodic reporting. It's not very, um, and there's all this other stuff happening, right? But if you unbundle and just actually have a box full of loans, well, another thing that's a box full of loans is called a mortgage-backed security. And a mortgage-backed security has a trade tape that you can see in the monthly report, typically from the trustee. And depending on the granularity of the information, you can make good decisions or bad decisions about, about whether or not you want to be you know, purchasing that asset and, and having a, an opinion about whether it's priced fairly. Now, in a world where all this information is on chain and rapidly transparent, then the reporting goes from a batch process to a real-time process in terms of what's moving when, and you can see it all, which will make your assessment of the, of the information better. And then on top of that, it's easy to gather these things up and put them in boxes, but it's also easy to split them out. So right now, it'd be very difficult to look at a, an RMBS and say, I want to buy that loan out of the box, right? Whereas, whereas, you know, in a world where basically there's frictionless electronic markets and everything all the time with, with perfect information, you can basically go and pull single assets out and bundle, bundle them, unbundle them, rebundle them much more uh, simply and quickly and cheaply. Let's talk about how some of the products themselves evolve in this environment, because let's continue on your example of mortgage-backed securities. On one hand, if the individual mortgages were all tokenized, you know, I kind of don't need an MBS for the sake of being able to buy those mortgages individually. But if I'm an investor, I, I don't really want to write my own code to do all kinds of, uh, of specialized analysis on, on who's creditworthy and who's not. I want 
the the role of an MBS bundler to still exist. I want somebody to go and find good mortgages that are mortgages worth investing in and bundle them together into a package for me. But I probably want to have more visibility than I used to have to it. And maybe I want the ability to, to break those up after the, after the fact and, and maybe sell off the ones that I'm not uh, in complete agreement with the bundler that were good ones and keep the other ones. So do we still have MBS that are a bundle that can't be broken? Or do we look at the role that the, uh, the person who was assembling that MBS is, is different? Yeah, so I think, I think there's a couple of things that come into play with that. So the reason that that typically doesn't exist now is because there's an informational asymmetry, as we all know from the financial crisis and the pre-crisis era of, of you know, misdirected origination. There's an informational asymmetry between the originator and the purchaser of, of the asset. To the extent that all the information can be put on chain and made more and more granular, we can reduce we can heavily reduce that that informational asymmetry, which will then allow an unpacking and, and kind of more pure world of, of kind of granular risk transfer. Now, the role of the bundler currently and the role of the rating agency and the other people who make these attestations is, is really, and the underwriter is, is, to, is to bundle them mechanically, but also to wear some liability in case something goes wrong, right? And, and make the attestations that they've tried to do a good job and, and try to manage that incentive misalignment problem. But that incentive misalignment problem gets vastly reduced the more transparent the throughput of information is. And the more direct and less intermediated it is because the potential for conflicts of interest is there. And I think that point is a broader point to make about the whole idea of reducing the degree of intermediation or increasing the degree of disintermediation in the system, which is anytime you start putting people in between movements of money and, and activity, there's always the potential for conflicts of interest to arise. And so to the extent that a tokenized market removes intermediaries, automates away in transparent ways, transparent you know, governance, transparency I'm talking about, it just removes the possibility or, 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 or scope of potential conflicts of interest, which I think is another really important piece uh, of the puzzle in terms of where the market structure is going. Let's talk a little bit more about who wins and who loses through these changes. You know, obviously, there always has to be winners and losers. And I think net-net, there's a huge win for the finance industry out of this kind of modernization that we're talking about. But if I go back to something like, you know, the advent of the Internet, it got better for airlines and it got better for travelers. But boy, it wasn't a good time to be a travel agent because those middlemen really got put out of business. Is that the same situation that we're looking at here? And who are the people in the finance industry that really need to worry about whether the functions they're providing are going to be threatened by obsolescence. Yeah, well, look, if the story high level is a story of radical disintermediation in the future, then you probably want to be positioning yourself to be in an endpoint business, not a middleware business. So if you're in the supply chain of savings to investment, it's probably better to, to be either creating a need for capital or aggregating the capital on the savings endpoint of that supply chain rather than sitting in the middle and, and just you know controlling access. So anybody who's controlling access to that in a world of radical transparency and radical disintermediation is going to have a big problem from a business perspective. Now, if you're in the physical market, look, somebody's still going to need to produce goods and people will need to consume them. But again, the business of sort of non-transparently moving stuff around is probably not going to be a great business. So, so Again, I think the basic operative theory is be on the endpoint, not not in the middle. Practically speaking, like I said, it's it's all about 
increased transparency. And so if, you're, if your core product is informational asymmetry or, or having access to flows nobody else has access to, I think, I think you're probably in for, for you know, a, tough, a tough go of it. Now, on the other hand, in terms of winners, people will always need risk takers. So if your job is understanding the information at hand and being good at taking risk and wearing risk, it's probably going to be pretty, pretty great. And, and the costs of moving that risk around are just going to keep going down. Charlie, a lot of this has to do with management of collateral. I want to talk through, let's imagine that you and I are going to jointly, and for the rest of this podcast, redesign the way commodity futures trading works in terms of the margin and collateral system. So in the current system, if I want to trade futures, I've got to put some money up called margin or performance bond, which is basically the, the buffer that if I lose money on my positions, uh, they, you know, I, I've covered it somehow. I, I'm not going to put the, the brokers completely out of business if I split town and head for South America. Um, if I start to run low, if I become undermargined during the course of the trading day, the exchange doesn't even know what the equity in my account is. They have no visibility to that because the exchange doesn't manage anybody's account. Only the futures commission merchants or, or brokers know what's in my account. And they all have their own computer systems. Some of them are not all of that sophisticated that will keep up with whether I'm making or losing money. And if I start to lose a lot of money on a given day, they bring up a little report that comes to somebody's attention and a human being has to get on the phone and call me a margin call. And if they can get a hold of me, they say, look, uh, you've got some positions that you're losing a lot of money on. You're going to be under your margin requirement by the end of the day. You have to either wire money into your account before close of business today, or you need to close some positions. And if they can't get a hold of me or they can't do that, different brokers handle it differently. But you have a completely manual system. It has some automation that's supporting it. They don't have to, to sit around and, and look at everybody's account all day. They've got computers to help them notice when problems arise. But Charlie, there's something that not only can happen, but does happen with alarming frequency, which is somebody in the futures market has positions move against them so quickly that their account goes to negative equity, where they actually have to, even after closing all their positions, they have to pay money to the brokerage just to get back to zero. And that could be money that they don't have. And that ultimately puts not only the broker at risk, but it puts the other clients of that broker at risk. Because the next backstop, if the broker can't handle the loss, is it gets shared by the other clients of that broker. That's something they don't tell you in the Series 3 exam. And I think a lot of even professional traders don't realize that that risk exists. I imagine a completely different system in the future, where if we have tokenization, not just of the assets that we're trading, but also of the collateral that we're posting to trade against, all of a sudden, that whole manual process can be completely automated. So that what happens is I can set a set of rules to say, look, when this happens, if we get to a situation where my positions are underwater, Either I want you to immediately liquidate them, in which case the computer could do it automatically without any human intervention, or I could say, I want you to, up to a certain limit, I want you to transfer assets from other accounts that I've 
you know, provided connections to, and I want to increase my collateral automatically so that my positions are not liquidated. Ideally, if I were designing this system as a software architect, I would say as soon as the account gets into any kind of margin deficiency, I want the exchange or the broker to activate a piece of Python code or Java code that could be a a default piece of software that's provided by the exchange that performs a standard function, or it could be something that the customer has developed themselves that imposes their own business rules that says, okay, if this happens, we're going to cut down 10% of our positions, but we're also going to transfer money, not a wire transfer that that takes till the end of the day to complete, but instantaneously, we're going to transfer assets by selling T-bills in some other account and transfer more money in to cover this performance bond. I'd love to write my own code to control what happens in a margin deficiency situation in my account. And I know as a software architect, there's no reason that can't be designed if we have tokenization of not just the assets being traded, but also the collateral system that supports it. Um, That's a, a vision that I haven't heard anybody else talking about. What are your reactions to it? And what else can you think of along those lines that we should be doing? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I think um, some of what you said actually does exist now in the, in the digital asset markets globally in crypto. So one of the things you, you mentioned was basically reducing the settlement lag or, or the, the, the timing lag between the account dipping into, into uh, reduced equity and, and, and a liquidation and the whole kind of manual process of margin calling. And it's, it's actually quite standard across the various uh, exchanges in the crypto market uh, out there, out there globally for, you know, basically real time liquidation to occur subject to, you know, a certain degree of stress. And that's, that's a pretty, that's a pretty normal thing. So most of the existing financial, and, and, and by the way, that doesn't really re- rely that much on, on tokenization per se. Uh, Cause that, you know, that's just, that's a feature that could be easily stood up in a um, custodial or centralized exchange architecture just as easily in, 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 as it could be in a, a decentralized architecture. And in fact, that's quite standard in, in the market. And, and I think one of the reasons that the crypto market evolved that way is because it was possible to send uh, you know, more Bitcoin when it's time to top off your account. And, and so that's actually standard. Now, the second piece of what you said, so real-time kind of real-time liquidation and, and margin testing, just taking down those lags in a way to make sure that the systems reconcile and stuff that, that that's actually something that does exist now in the crypto market. Now, in terms of seeing the collateral movements on chain and having your derivative or loan asset be collateralized by what faces, uh, what faces the chain itself, this is kind of broadly comes under the rubric of DeFi, which was all the rage this summer in the digital asset markets. Uh, we should define DeFi. What, what exactly does that mean? Who, who defines it? Yeah, DeFi means decentralized finance. So basically, your counterparty, by, by virtue of the use of smart contracts and digital assets, uh, whether they're tokens or, or cryptocurrencies, you can basically face the, the, the protocol itself. So your counterparty for an asset, you know, for, for a, a transaction, is the chain. And so maybe it helps to give an example. There are a number, any number of asset-based lending protocols where if you pledge a Bitcoin, you can get, that's worth, let's say, $20,000. You can get $10,000 worth of stable coins basically posted back to you, which are the senior slice. So the collateralized, I guess, by the Bitcoin. And so that collateral, uh, and the Bitcoin is there. It's just, it's locked up on the chain. 
in order to unlock the Bitcoin and get your Bitcoin back, you have to send back the same number of digital uh, digital stable coins that, that were issued against that Bitcoin collateral. Now, if the Bitcoin drops in price, you either have to send uh, more Bitcoin or you have to delever by paying back the stable coins. And if it goes too far, then the protocol will have some way of liquidating the collateral and uh, and then and then making the asset hold that way. So when we think about how the market structure could work in our in our kind of what is the what is the structure look like in the future, um, kind of spitballing, you could imagine a derivative trading system where all the collateral is visible on chain against the derivatives and and is moved around and settled in real time. So everything is basically pre-collateralized. And that serves a bunch of really cool functions because, because you're, you don't have the counterparty of the clearinghouse or the central clearer or uh, the other folks because everybody who's got a derivative instrument has put up the collateral where everybody else can see it. And it just gets uh, sliced and diced depending on, on movements of prices in the market by, by, the, by the protocol itself. So yeah, so so the the settlement lag could be reduced, and also the movements of the collateral, the instantaneous settlements could could also be done. Now, you talked about one one final thing, which is setting up as a trader or as a risk taker, having different buckets of assets and then interconnecting them as needed. And and actually, this is something that that is happening quite frequently in in the crypto market now too, because crypto liquidity and price discovery happens across lots of venues all over the internet, and people who are in the business of providing liquidity and arbitraging you know, price, price movements between different venues and stuff need to be thoughtful about, about how to move these assets around. Some of these are internal systems, but, but uh, people are doing lots of work to try to make them essentially single, single price discovery protocols and what are called decentralized exchanges uh, online as well. And, and uh, that's a big area of research. Now, I want to clarify something. You've made several references to, we've already got a lot of these things that exist today, but you're talking about in crypto markets, those things exist today. As we start to contemplate giving those things to conventional markets, I would argue, I think that it's a different game because, you know, crypto markets are kind of self-selected by people who want to be part of the latest technology thing. Now let's go to, you know, the cotton trader who's been in this business for 45 years and is got the whole existing collateral system. You know, maybe this this individual's real expertise is not so much, you know, financial collateral. It's really they're a cotton trader. They understand about crops and what happens when, you know, there's a flood and it changes the, the expectations around price. And that's where their head is spending most of its time. As we think about completely re-architecting the entire collateral system that they've been used to for 40 years. Do you think that's welcome news because it's modernizing something and making it much better and eliminating counterparty risks that don't need to be there and therefore everybody's going to love it? Or do you think that this is something that will meet resistance of, wait a minute, why are you changing everything that I know about how the market works? Why is this necessary? I used to think it was the latter. I thought the market wasn't ready. After the first few podcasts, you know, maybe I'm just talking to visionary people. I don't know. But it seems like this market's a lot more ready for change than I was expecting. I think that, you know, there's a kind of old adage in, in tech, which is something's got to be 10x, 10x better, 10x cheaper, 10x faster to induce switching. Right? Look, people don't like change. Behavior patterns get burned in. So there's got to be a clear value proposition to to doing all of this to get to get some kind of movement in in you know over from existing architectures to these new architectures 
so there's got to be a real commercial proposition. So if somebody shows up and says, I've got some great enterprise blockchain, you know, solution, you know, please, please port it over. Whoever the decision maker is around, around whatever business, if it's an exchange or a bank or, or, or setting something new up for people to adopt it, it's got, it's got to have a clear value proposition. And, and what I think, at least in the context of the big, the big financial institutions, which is a world I, I, I know uh, and love, there is a very strong cost argument for for implementing some of these architectures because if you have on-chain collateral transparency and on-chain collateral management, there's likely to be fairly large cost savings, both in terms of just processing and back office overhead and, and just moving stuff around and, and reconciliation and trade breaks and fails and just all this stuff that creates operational risk and therefore capital requirements and just creates operational cost, meaningful operational cost just to, just to, just to run. Uh, and so there's just a kind of a clear cost there. And then also with the reduction in the counterparty risk by having the collateral transparency, you know, real-time settlements, movements and stuff, the working capital that gets consumed by the system should just go down. And the uh, the amount of economic risk capital that has to be held against counterparty failures should also go down. And there's, you know, it's too soon to, to really know, but I suspect that all the financial institutions in the world are really thinking this problem through well and properly to find those cost efficiencies where where basically reduction you know collateral tran- increased transparency and reduction of counterparty risk can can and instantaneous settlement can just take capital requirements out of the system right cuz like there's a lot of dead capital sitting inside of big financial institutions and and it would be good to find ways to pull it out prudently now i think there will be a big regulatory piece to this too as you know cuz it'll take time to familiarize everybody with the advantages of these architectures and there's some new risks too because there's Cybersecurity is always a huge concern for every for every financial institution, but doubly so on uh, on public protocols where you know there, there's risk that you know things don't work, and so there, there's work to do too. But I think um, I think the potential capital efficiencies in the system should be a strong enough induction to induce switching. Charlie, last question: You grew up as a finance guy, not a technology guy. You've already made a certain transition to really learn about all of this digital bearer asset tokenization stuff. I'm going to imagine that we have a lot of finance people in the audience who are saying, okay, you guys finally convinced me. I got to take this stuff seriously and learn all about this tokenization thing and what it's really going to mean to me. Because eventually the part of the market that I'm in is going to get redesigned around tokenized digital assets and so forth. If, if you're that person, what's your learning path? Is there a book they need to read? What, what do they do to kind of come up to speed and get a sense of what's coming? Not around digital currency, but around the tokenization of financial assets in financial markets. Oh, wow. Um, in terms of just a resource list, I would just read as much as you can about DeFi on the internet. It just starts, everything starts with a simple Google search these days. You know, quite centralized. <laughs> rather than uh, decentralized, I suppose. But yeah, I would start out with, with DeFi and just a couple of Google searches and, uh, and, and read up on kind of the whole, the whole notion of basically decentralized marketplaces and the on-chain collateral movement. And then I would experiment a little bit. I would, I would get in there and, and, and uh, trade a bit of Ethereum and, and read up on Ethereum and, and kind of the roadmap for Ethereum. There's some technical jargon in there around ETH 2.0 and proof of work versus proof of stake. But as you start to read up on blockchains and, and digital asset technologies, there's a lot there. And then the other thing I would do is I'd encourage you to, to have a look at the DGLD protocol, 
which is at dgld.ch on the internet. And you can have a good understanding just of like basically the mechanics of how that works and something that's very tangible, which is gold bars sitting in, in Switzerland. Now, at blockchain.com, we've done a, a joint venture with our with our, our partners at MKS PAP, which is a highly respected precious refinery in, in Switzerland that many of us know and love. And then and then and CoinShares, which is a, one of the leading crypto asset managers in London. And we put uh, basically a wrapped version of the DGLD token into the blockchain wall. So you can basically hold tokenized gold sitting in a vault in Switzerland uh, anywhere that you have a blockchain.com wallet. So maybe maybe an easiest thing to do is to just start with, uh, with a little poke around on that. And something that we haven't discussed in this interview, but I think is very important, is the concept of smart contracts. Give us just the quick overview of what is a smart contract, and more importantly, why should you care as a finance guy? Yeah. So a smart contract is a piece of software that runs on a decentralized protocol. And what it does is it moves digital assets around or otherwise modifies them subject to some conditions. So for example, it might say, this Bitcoin is sitting here. If the price of it goes down, sell it, (laughs) right? Or if this Bitcoin is sitting here, if somebody sends some stable coins to this particular address, send the Bitcoin to that particular address, you know, which is kind of a core primitive for collateralized lending. So basically it's an automation of movements of assets subject to conditions. And, you know, I think maybe the, the simplest version of that, you know, in the, or analog to that in the old market would have been if you're sitting inside a bank or a hedge fund or whatnot, and you have a tradable in your booking system, let's say an interest rate swap, that will spin off future cash flows. It will do things programmatically determinately. Just imagine doing that, having that same tradable or calculator, you know, sitting on, on chain and, and, and basically responding to, to things that happen on the chain. So when you have a contract between two parties, uh, an old-fashioned contract, that's spelling out what human beings are supposed to do. And if the human beings don't do what the contract says they're supposed to do, a court gets involved and forces them to do it. In a smart contract, the human beings don't have to do anything. The computer carries out what the contract calls for, and it happens automatically without anybody doing anything. Is that the gist of it? Yeah, basically, that's, that is the gist of it. So basically, it's a set of if-then statements right? that, that are put up there on, 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 on the blockchain. And basically, if certain monies arrive in certain places or other conditions that are being measured and watched in some way transpire, then, then you know, something happens in terms of movements of money, releases of assets, you know, other kinds of data flowing around. Charlie, before I let you go, I want to clarify one more thing, which is, you know, if somebody were to take a real quick look at blockchain.com, they might think, oh, this is a, it's a wallet for people who want to buy cryptocurrency like Bitcoin. I don't want to buy any Bitcoin, so this is not for me. But really, blockchain.com is a whole lot more than that. If you're the finance guy that's evaluating this tokenized asset model, where does blockchain.com come into the equation? That's a great question. Look, blockchain.com is the world's largest self-custodied crypto wallet. So our goal is to build an open financial system for the internet. And one of the most important pieces of of that, and we have an institutional business, which is, is sort of separate from this consideration, but basically the wallet allows you to hold your own private keys. And as more and more tokens come up, you'll be able to hold more and more things. So the, the relationship with the customer you know, our, our view is that it sits in the wallet 
And that's where you can hold all kinds of assets, not just Bitcoin, but anything that's tokenized. So right now you can buy tokenized gold. In the future, who knows? Who knows what will what will launch? But uh, but the, the key the key idea there is that our platform has a relationship with our clients, and we want to give them basically a, a great user experience accessing these technologies, cryptocurrency or, or or digital asset or otherwise. Charlie, thanks so much for a terrific interview. I look forward to having you back for another interview at some point in the future. My guest next week will be Mike Green from Logica Funds. Many of you already know Mike has done some fantastic work on analyzing the systemic risk posed by crowding out of active management by passive managers. So believe me, you're going to want to hear what Mike has to say on how markets could be improved and made smarter. Listeners, please help us get the word out about Smarter Markets. It's not every day you come across a podcast with guests on the caliber of Jeff Curry, Miriam Ayati, Robert Friedland, Tom McMahon, and, of course, Charlie McGarra. And we have a veritable who's who of industry legends lined up for interviews in coming weeks. Your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms mean the world to us as does your help spreading the word about smarter markets via word of mouth. For the Macro Voices Podcast Network, I'm Eric Townsend. See you again next week for another installment of Smarter Markets. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets. For free episode transcripts, visit smartermarketspod.com. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Smarter Markets, its producers, sponsors, and hosts, Eric Townsend and Abex Technologies, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets.